Our scene opens in a small hut in the Kuiper Belt Forest. Neil White, a young prince, is on the run from his wicked stepfather and has taken shelter inside. His rest is disturbed, however, by the return of the hut's inhabitants. Oh, golly, who are you? Who are you, you mean? Not that we wish to be rude or anything, but you are in our house. So come on, who are you? I'm sorry if you're coming in, but your house is just so warm and inviting. Yeah, inviting for us, not random strangers who want to lie down. Get out! I'm sorry, young man, but you have to excuse Eris here. She's named after a goddess of discord and takes it rather to heart. I do not. We're the seven dwarf planets and we're pleased to meet you, whoever you are. Seven? But there are only five of you. Have you tried having an orbital period of 284 years and synchronising meetings? Um, no. Well, I'm Neil White and I'm Prince of Manchester. My evil stepfather has taken over the kingdom and wants to kill me. Oh, you poor thing. I'll make some tea. Well, I'm Ceres and you've already met Eris. The lady with the kettle is Halmir. And ignore that one there. He's not one of us. Why? Hello, I'm Ian Morrison. I normally do the, the night sky. That's 15727, Ian Morrison, and you're a minor planet, so get out! Sorry about that, love. This one here's Mackey Mackey, but we just call him Mickey. But where's Pluto? Gee, I don't know. Pluto? Pluto, where are you? I can't believe you made that joke. Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> Pluto never comes in if Eris is around. She's the reason he's no longer living with the big guys. No, I'm the reason Pluto had to move out. Huh? What? Who are you? I'm Mike Brown, Pluto killer. Daddy! Oh, Dr. Brown, thank you ever so much for discovering my friends and helping us to be promoted to dwarf planets. No problem. I'd better be off. Your brothers and sisters won't discover themselves. Well, I've made the tea. I'll just pop to the snack club and get us some... Generic chocolate bars. Generic chocolate bars? We don't do product placement, dearie. You're new round here, aren't you? Meanwhile, in the Palace of Manchester... Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who is the most interesting of them all? You are, of course. Your wonderfulness. Good. Now tell me where that annoying stepson of mine is. I want to make sure he never finishes his PhD. He's in the forest with the dwarf planets. Your evilness. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. I'll go there at once. He must not live to see January. And then all his research will be mine. <laughs> mine. What an eccentric performance. And before I go, show me what's happening in the conference room. I have a suspicion that they're producing podcasts under my very nose. Those graduate students. Not wishing to alarm you, sir, but they've made 99 of them. What? Let me see at once. Of course. The Jodcast, complete with a telegram from the Queen. With Megan Argo, David Alt, John Field, Jen Gupta, Ian Morrison, Mark Pervert, and Neil Young. The Jodcast, December 2010 edition. Hello and welcome to the 100th audio episode of The Jodcast. Oh, that's quite a number. And with me in the studio are Jen and Neil. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey. Dave, do you feel really old now that you've done 100 episodes <laughs> of the Jogcast? It's, well, yeah, given that it's five years next issue, it's gonna, it's, it's a long time. It's party time, Dave. It's a lot of commitment. You, you need to have fun, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and party bags with those and little cake. boxes of Smarties because it's a five, f- fifth birthday. Yeah. 
Oh, that's going to be so much fun. More on that later. But in the show this time, we have interviews with some of your favourite Jodcasters, and we'll find out what you can see in the night sky in December. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, blowing galactic raspberries, a black hole in M100, and the discovery of the first extragalactic planet. The usual image of the Milky Way is a fairly normal disk galaxy with spiral arms full of stars and gas, a bulge containing older stars, and a supermassive black hole sitting right at the centre. But observations in various different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum show evidence for a giant diffuse structure extending many thousands of light-years above and below the main galactic disk. Now, maps made using 600 days of observations from the Fermi satellite show giant gamma-ray-emitting bubbles emanating from the core of the Milky Way, stretching far above and below the plane of the disk. Such bubbles are seen in some other galaxies, where they can be signatures of an active supermassive black hole at the galaxy's core, or a high rate of star formation powering a strong galactic wind. These newly discovered bubbles, reported in the Astrophysical Journal on November the 10th, cover a large part of the sky, reaching up to 50 degrees above the plane of the disk, and across half the sky, as seen from our vantage point two-thirds of the distance between the core and the outer edge of the galactic disk. Previous observations and surveys of the sky have shown evidence of X-ray shell structures and a haze of microwave emission seen by WMAP and attributed to electrons moving in a magnetic field. Images of these features from other full-sky surveys show a strong similarity in the shape of these bubbles across the spectrum, suggesting a common cause for the gamma-ray bubbles seen by Fermi, the X-ray features observed by ROSAT, and the radio haze detected by WMAP. Centred on the galactic core, the two bubbles, one above one below the plane of the disk, are very similar in shape, suggesting that they are caused by the same process. One possible origin is that jets from a central black hole have inflated these bubbles in the past, pushing the material outwards before switching off, leaving the bubbles behind. The gas, heated by the jets, would be less dense than the halo material above, and so would rise away from the disk, just as a helium balloon rises in air. One objection to this idea is that the rounded shape of the bubbles observed by Fermi are not typical of the much narrower jet-powered features seen in other galaxies. Another possibility is that the bubbles are driven by wind, generated by a large number of young hot stars, created in a nuclear starburst event, where many young hot stars are created very quickly, and driven further by the energy released by subsequent supernova explosions, although evidence from both the number of supernova remnants found in the galactic centre and the observed abundance of radioactive isotopes suggests that this scenario may not be so likely. Whatever the cause, these new features are a reminder that there is much we still don't understand about our own local universe. Theoretical models of the evolution of massive stars suggest that, for stars over a certain mass limit, the likely end result is a black hole, the compressed remnant of a stellar core, which is so massive that not even light can escape its gravitational pull, making them quite hard to spot. Luckily for our planet, such explosions are rare and happen at large distances from the Earth, but this makes studying them something of a challenge for astronomers. One relatively nearby explosion was that of supernova 1979c, which occurred in the spiral galaxy M100, a mere 50 million light-years from our solar system. The explosion happened some 50 million years ago, but due to the speed at which light travels, observers only saw the event occur in 1979. The light reaching us now shows the nature of the system 31 years after the event. Such a close example of this kind of explosion provides an ideal opportunity to study such a system and test theoretical models of stellar evolution. 
With other supernovae that have been observed, there is an initial quick rise in brightness at the time of the explosion, followed by a slower decline in brightness as the shockwave from the explosion expands into the surrounding gas. This gradual fading is observed in ordinary visible light, as well as in the radio and X-ray parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. But in the case of 1979C, rather than fading, researchers have found that the amount of X-ray emission has remained surprisingly constant over many years. Researchers at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in the U.S., led by Daniel Patenauda, analyzed archived data from instruments on board the ROSAT, XMM-Newton, SWIFT, and Chandra satellites taken over 12 years, and found that the X-ray emission does not match what is expected for a shock front. Their study, to be published in the journal New Astronomy, suggests the peculiar nature of the X-ray emission may be due to material falling onto a stellar-mass black hole, formed at the time of the supernova explosion, as the star's outer material collapsed. While a black hole with a mass roughly five times that of the Sun could power the observed X-ray emission, another possibility is that the supernova explosion instead created a very young, fast-spinning neutron star, with a strong wind of high-energy particles. The authors point out that the current data cannot firmly show which model is correct, but that more sensitive observations could help. If the X-ray brightness varies on short timescales, this would be evidence for ongoing accretion where material is continuing to fall onto the black hole, powering the X-ray emission. Over the last 20 years, several hundred planets have been detected around other stars. Most of these are more massive than Jupiter and orbit fairly close to their parent star, since these are the easiest planets to find using current methods. Now, a team of astronomers have discovered a giant planet orbiting a star which may have come from another galaxy. The team, led by Johnny Setiawan at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Germany, discovered the planet using a high-resolution spectrograph, which can detect the tiny motion of a star due to the tug of an orbiting planet. The star itself, known as HIP 13044, is located in the constellation of Fornax, and has a motion across the sky which suggests that it was not formed in the Milky Way like the Sun, but came from a dwarf galaxy, which was tidally disrupted and merged with our own galaxy between 6 and 9 billion years ago. This means that the planet is likely to be the first exoplanet known to have formed outside the Milky Way. The parent star is also unusual, in that it contains a relatively small amount of heavy elements. In astronomy, anything heavier than hydrogen or helium is considered a metal, and very few known exoplanets orbit stars with such low proportions of metals. The standard model of planetary formation says that the higher the metal content of a system, the more likely it is that planets will form. The star is also old, having already passed through the red giant phase, where a star expands to hundreds of times the size of the Sun. Planets orbiting close to such a star are thought to be swallowed up by the star's outer layers during the red giant phase. This planet, named HIP 13044b, orbits very close to its parent star, completing one orbit every 16.2 days, and one possibility is that something caused it to move closer to the star since the red giant phase, with its original orbit lying much further out. The rotation of the star is also quite fast for a star of this type, and one reason for this could be that other, closer planets were swallowed up during the red giant phase, causing the star to spin faster. Although evidence of a planet located in the Andromeda galaxy was announced last year, that detection has not been confirmed, making HIP 13044b the first definite planet with a known extragalactic origin. The fact that our own Sun will one day swell up to become a red giant 
makes this planet particularly interesting, since it is one of the very few known to have survived the red giant phase of its host star. And finally, often described as the successor to Hubble, the James Webb Space Telescope will be the most sensitive and technically ambitious infrared telescope ever launched. Rather than operating from low Earth orbit as Hubble does, the JWST, named after former NASA Administrator James Webb, will sit at a point known as L2, a gravitationally stable point some 1.5 million kilometres from the Earth. While this has many operational advantages, it does mean that servicing missions will not be an option should something malfunction. Originally proposed a year before Hubble launched, the project was estimated to cost a total of around 1 billion US dollars when reviewed in 2001. By the time it received an official go-ahead in 2008, the addition of new and more complex instruments had pushed the projected cost to $5 billion. Now, an independent review of the project has revealed that the cost has spiralled to more than $6.5 billion. US dollars. Since the extra money required to complete JWST will likely have to come from NASA's existing budget, this staggering overrun has implications for much of NASA's science programme, and could well have effects far across the agency. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, for our interviews this time, we decided to well, give you a, a view into what your favourite Jodcasters are doing. And so, Megan has been interviewed by Mark, and I interviewed Stuart. So here are those interviews. Megan has been doing the news for us since the very beginning of the Jodcast, but we don't actually know, I think, that much about what sort of research you do. So could you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Well, you might have picked up on maybe what my favourite topics are from what tends to end up in the news each month. Um, I study galaxies. In particular, I watch galaxies crash into each other. Um, so my interest is in the, the technical term, as we call them, starbursts. So these are galaxies that have high rates of star formation. So more stars are forming in them than are currently forming in the Milky Way. So the Milky Way is not a starburst galaxy. It's an ordinary, fairly straightforward, boring spiral galaxy if spiral galaxies can be described as boring. <laughs> um, but some other galaxies are far more active, so this could be because there's been a collision or a close encounter with another galaxy. And what happens in these cases is you get um, an interaction between the two, and the gravitational interaction between the galaxies causes gas to start collapsing under gravity. And when that starts to happen, as the cloud gets denser and denser, it gets heavier and heavier, and that pulls more gas in around it, and it gets heavier still, which pulls more gas in. And eventually you get these cores turning into young stars. Um, and if you have massive clouds of gas in a galaxy, what happens when this, these collisions occur and this collapse starts to happen is you get very massive stars forming. And when you get very massive stars forming, those are the ones that tend to explode as supernovae. So you might have noticed there's, you know, been the odd supernova story in the news over the last few years. Is it happens to be one of my, my areas of interest. So you get these galaxies where you can actually measure the star formation rate by looking at how many supernovae go off in them, and that's one of the things that I've been studying with radio telescopes over the last few years. Okay, so these are the galaxies where all the fun stuff is happening in the universe, basically. Well, there's a lot of fun stuff. I won't say all of the fun stuff, but there's <laughs> okay. an awful lot of fun stuff happening in them, yes. You just mentioned that you study them in the radio, so are they particularly amenable to being studied in radio frequencies? Well, they're actually pretty interesting across the whole electromagnetic spectrum. So if you look at one of my favourite galaxies, which is M82, I um, studied M82 quite a lot for my PhD. Um, M82 has um, an awful lot of optical emission. It's an edge-on galaxy that's been through a close encounter with M81, so it's quite a disturbed system. 
because it's edge-on, we can't tell what its spiral structure is um, directly because we can't see it. All we see, we're looking through the, the plane of the disk. It's like looking through the plane of the Milky Way. All you see is a strip of stars across the sky. You don't see that spiral structure. It's the same thing in M82. It's edge-on to our line of sight. But if you look at it in the optical, you see all sorts of dust lanes and all the rest of it. And this is stuff that's been uh, sort of moved around and created. Some of the dust has been created in these supernovae explosions, which have happened because of the starburst activity. Um, but you've also got, if you look in other wave bands, so if you look in things like um, hydrogen alpha, which is a particular spectral line of the, the hydrogen atom, what you see are these enormous great big clouds of gas that sort of um, start from the centre of the galaxy and spread above and below the plane of the galaxy. And the, the idea, we think, is that those are actually being thrown out by the star formation. So these young, massive stars have very powerful stellar winds that blow the gas out from the disk. And the supernovae do the same thing. Supernovae is basically a huge shock wave that ripples through the interstellar medium surrounding it and actually pushes the gas away from the, the explosion. So we think that these, these enormous great big um, sort of chimneys of material are caused by this star formation activity in the middle. So they're really interesting in the optical. But if you look at them in the ultraviolet, they're also really interesting because in the ultraviolet you see the young hot stars because they emit a lot of their light in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum. So that can tell you something about the, the stellar population. The infrared is also quite interesting. One of the things with starburst galaxies is because you've got so much dust, you actually can't see very far into them in the optical because that dust blocks the light. It's like the dust lanes in the Milky Way. They look dark to us because that's there's just no light coming from behind them because the dust gets in the way. But with infrared and with radio as well, what you can actually do is look through those dust lanes and see further into the galaxy. So infrared can tell you something again about the, the stars, the stellar population in the galaxy and the radio can look through those dust lanes and actually see not only supernova remnants in the disk of the galaxy that you wouldn't see any other way, and supernovae themselves as well in some cases, but you can also actually look through galaxies and look at the background um, quasars, the background AGN in the distant universe, and those active galaxies are actually quite interesting because they can tell you something about the medium in the galaxy, in the foreground galaxy itself, between you and the background quasar. So there's all sorts of things you can do with these galaxies, and there are lots of X-ray sources, gamma-ray sources, Pretty much any wave band you're interested in, Starburst galaxies are, are interesting. So you did your PhD at George Wall Bank, and I think you actually grew up not very far away. So did the telescope or the observatory have any kind of effect on you? Did you know about it when you were growing up? I did, yes. And I think there is a slight chance that it might have played some part in where my career path uh, eventually took me. Um, yeah, I grew up in a town called Macclesfield, which is not very far from Jodrell Bank at all. And I, the first time I think I went there, I was probably about five. And when I was about 11 or so, I think I joined the local astronomical society, which met at the observatory. So I've been going to Jodrell Bank um, way before I started doing my PhD. I've been going there once a month anyway for, for those kind of meetings. So I've had a very long association with the place. So yeah, I think it, it played uh, quite a significant part in my sort of eventual career path as an astronomer. That sounds familiar to me because I grew up in Manchester and we also went on a couple of visits to Jodrell Bank, which um, which I certainly never forgot. And it was kind of interesting to get to the other side, to get to the inside of the observatory, mm. finally, after all those years. Yes. And, I, and I feel it must have made some impression somewhere. I, th I think it probably has an awful lot of people. It It is really sort of bizarre the first time you go across the fence and you're sort of in the research side of yes. the building. Yes, it's very strange. Yeah. <laughs> You had this long association with Jodrell Bank, and then in 2008, I think you moved almost as far away as you could possibly have gone, all the way to Perth, where you are now in Australia. So what was the, um, what sort of 
things did you find there that you're working on now? That's right. Yeah, I, I left Jodra Bank on the Friday and I started in Perth on the Monday. So it was a, a weekend of traveling. <laughs> um, yeah, so I've moved to, to Perth and I'm working now for a, uh, an organization called ICRA, which is the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research, which is a, a joint institute between the University of Western Australia and Curtin University, which is my employer. And um, so I'm a postdoc and postdocs are basically researchers who are paid to just do research um, sort of after you finish your PhD. What I've been working on here recently is um, actually working on this technique of joining radio telescopes together, this VLBI technique that has been covered a few times on the Jogcast. So with an ordinary radio telescope, when you actually look at the sky, the resolution, the amount of detail you can see is actually pretty poor for just a single telescope because the wavelengths we're using are so long. When you add several of them together and make an interferometer, you can make much more detailed pictures of the sky. You get a much, much better resolution. The downside to that is, along with your much better resolution, is you get a very, very, very small field of view on the sky. And when we combine the signals together in a correlator, the only way to increase your field of view is to either have very, very, very short time integrations or very, very narrow spectral channels. And both of those processes mean you end up with very, very big data sets in ordinary correlators. But what we're trying to do here is actually use a software correlator, which is a bit different. Most of the correlators around the world at the moment are actually hardware correlators. So they're sort of, they're limited in how flexible they are by what hardware is actually built into the things. But if you've got a software correlator, the only limit really is how much you can program into it and how many processes and how much memory you can throw at the thing. So in principle, you can do an awful lot more with a software correlator than you can with a hardware correlator. So what we're actually trying to do is trying to image really, really wide fields of view using a software correlator. So we've got some code that's um, new into this this correlator that um, will actually let you image what's called the entire primary beam of the telescope. So you can think of the primary beam as sort of the field of view of one single telescope in your array. So if you've got a 25-meter telescope, radio telescope, at a frequency of 1.4 gigahertz, your primary beam is about half a degree on the sky. Um, if you've got an interferometer, then your actual resolution is much, much smaller than that, but you only ever see a tiny part of that half a degree size field of view. But what we can do with the, the software correlator is actually image the entire primary beam, image that entire half half degree. So you're sort of sp splitting it into lots of little separate fields of view, but you're getting them all at the same time. Yeah, you sort of, you can still run one run of the correlator, so you don't have to recorrelate many, many times. But what you do is you basically shift to each of these little individual positions, make an image, and then you can tile the images and make it up like a like a mosaic. And what you can end up with is a, an image that covers the whole half a degree primary beam, but might have, you know, a billion pixels or something. So these are really, really detailed images over very large areas of the sky for a radio interferometer. So this is quite a an interesting technique, and it's something that's going to be very much more common with the new radio telescopes that are coming online. So the pathfinders for the square kilometre array, most of these are wide field instruments and they're a few years down the line before they're fully operational. And these kind of techniques that we're working on are the kind of things that these telescopes are going to be doing sort of as standard. And the test piece that we've used for this is we did an observation earlier this year where we've actually looked at the Andromeda Galaxy M31 and most interferometers. So the, the very large array in New Mexico has um, quite a wide field of view because it's a small interferometer. And the images that we get from the VLA, you can do it sort of in, you know, maybe seven observations and you can cover the entire disk. What we're doing with the VLBI is we're trying to image an entire half a degree field at VLBI resolution, which is going to be, it's the, the number of pixels is just ridiculous. It's going to be an incredibly large data set when we've finished. 
and it's going to be the, the most detailed radio image of M31 that's ever been made. So as computers become more powerful, that's effectively making your telescopes better. Yeah, that's right. The, every, every year as, as computers get better, so we're following that, that Moore's Law trend. In fact, if you look at the, the computing requirements for the Square Kilometre Array, it relies on Moore's Law continuing over the next 10, 15 years. If Moore's Law does break down in the next 10, 15 years in terms of development, then the Square Kilometre Array is going to have a bit of a problem with its, with its, um, with its data processing. So we need the computers to keep on getting better, basically. Absolutely. If you, the, the numbers actually work out that when the SKA is built, if we get the computer that we currently think we need to do the data processing, it's going to be one of the top 100 supercomputers in the world when it's built. Right. Have you in Perth done any interferometry all the way from where you are to the UK? Not myself, no, but the technique, it, it does happen. Actually, one thing's, one thing that's happened fairly recently down here was a project that actually, so we're building one of these demonstrators for the Square Kilometre A up in the, in the outback about 10 hours drive inland from Perth and north of it. So there's a few antennas that have gone up there now, and there's a new telescope that's just been commissioned in New Zealand. So normally VLBI in Australia was a few telescopes on the east coast around sort of Sydney going down to um, sort of, uh, there's one down in Hobart in Tasmania, and there's one at Seduna, which is over near Adelaide. And that was the VLBI array in Australia. But now they've actually managed to add in one of these new telescopes from Western Australia and the telescope in New Zealand. So for the first time, we've got continent-sized arrays of telescopes that are actually operational in Australia as well. So that's quite exciting. And in principle, yeah, we can, well, in fact, they have in the past linked some of the Australian telescopes to the European array, to other telescopes in, in Asia, to the telescope at Hartabirstic in South Africa. And um, yeah, so you can, in principle, you can make a telescope the size of planet Earth. So just coming back to Jodrell again for a minute, I had one recollection of a star party um, that you were involved with when you were here and you demonstrated a meteor detector that I think you'd at least help to build yourself. Um, pra practical radio astronomy, actually building receivers and stuff is something that most of us don't get our hands on nowadays. So could you tell us a bit about what you did then? Yeah, it's kind of a shame that that's sort of not so common anymore that people actually get to play with bits of hardware. Um, yeah, that telescope, the, the meteor detector was, the hardware was built by Eddie Blackhurst, who's an engineer at Jodrell. I think this, he was actually interviewed on the Jodcast, um, I think it was last year, um, about the project. So what we did was we were interested in looking at the radio echoes from meteor trails in the atmosphere, because this is one of the things that, um, was basically the reason why Jodrell exists in the first place, because Sir so Bernard Lovell during the, the Second World War was working on the development of radar and he noticed that the radar operators were seeing echoes on their screens that they weren't reporting as aircraft and he wanted to know what they were. And um, he thought they may be due to cosmic rays. And when he actually, when the war finished and he went back to Manchester, he borrowed some radar equipment from the army and took it with him back to the university. And at the time, where the physics department was, where he set the, the equipment up in the quadrangle, it was right next to Oxford Road where there was a tram line. And trams electric sparks generate radio waves so that was a really really bad place to put a piece of radio uh, equipment so he couldn't use it there so he had to take it somewhere else and eventually after trying a few other places finding they didn't work so well he eventually found that there was a botanical station that the university owned which was at Jodrell Bank um, so he took the equipment out there and there have been sort of radio astronomers on the site ever since so when it got to the 50th anniversary of the telescope in 2007 one of the things we did as a sort of way to show the public um, how radio astronomy started basically in northwest of England was to build one of these instruments. It was slightly different to the way 
Lovell did it in the early days because that was actually radar. So they would transmit a pulse of radio waves up into the sky and listen for the reflections coming back. But these days, because we're listening to really faint signals coming from the universe with the rest of the telescopes at Jodrell, we obviously don't want to be transmitting signals. So we ask people to turn off their mobile phones, for example, when they come onto site. So what we did instead was we said, okay, well, we can still do radar. We'll just do over-the-horizon radar. So we let somebody else be the transmitter, and we pick up the reflections. And what we were using as the transmitters were um, European television stations, um, the old analog transmitters, because they work at a very good frequency that's perfect for this sort of work. You can't normally pick them up because they're over the horizon, so you don't get the direct signal. The only time you actually see them is when you get a reflection off something high up in the atmosphere, such as a meteor trail. So that's what we did, and it worked quite successfully for a couple of years. But because but because Europe are now mostly switching over to the digital uh, transmitters, we're actually losing those signals that we can use because the digital band is actually a lot higher in frequency, and it means that it's not at, it doesn't work quite so well for meteors. So sadly, it's uh, it's not working very well at the moment. But we'll see. Okay, so you like to get your hands on to the actual hardware as well as just taking observations and analysing the data. Personally, I find that if I can actually get hands-on with a piece of equipment, I understand the theory behind it a lot better than if I just look at some equations on a page. So I, I really like playing with bits of hardware. I always have done. So it was quite good fun to actually build that and test it and work out why it wasn't working and manage to fix it and get it all installed. So I really enjoyed that kind of thing. I enjoyed that one because it allowed us to actually do some observations on a cloudy day. There were a lot of people at the visitor centre who otherwise wouldn't really have been able to see anything. A cloudy night, I should say. But we were able to get these little flashes on the screen every time a meteor came along and ionised the uh, air in the atmosphere. That's right. There were a few star parties where the weather didn't play. But luckily, we had we had the technology. We could see through the clouds with our radio waves. So, <laughs> so the very last thing I wanted to ask you was, how does Perth compare to the plains of Cheshire. How do you find life and work in these two different, very different places? Well, they're both pretty flat. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cheshire is definitely greener and a lot wetter. Um, Perth, Perth is actually a nice city. A lot of people say Perth is really boring. Um, and that was a lot of people told me that before I moved here. But I've actually found the cities, it's, there's always stuff happening. It's just not quite so easy to find as it would be in, say, Manchester. So, yeah, it's an interesting city, and it's it's a really nice place to live. I've had a lot of fun here. I've met a lot of astronomers. When I arrived in 2008, there were about six astronomers in my department at Curtin. Um, there's now more like 30 of us, and there's an equivalent number wow. across the river at the University of Western Australia. So the, the radio astronomy community in Western Australia has grown incredibly in the last three years, and largely because, of course, of the Square Kilometre Array, which obviously the Australians are hoping will end up being built here in Australia. Well, you certainly make the Jogcast global for us anyway. You've straddled the whole world of radio astronomy, literally. <laughs> and have I picked up an accent? I don't think your accent has changed much. It was always fairly broad, but I can't detect an Aussie twang at the moment. <laughs> Do you think you've picked one up? Well, some people seem to think I have. I'm, I'm, I'm undecided. Um, but that, that was one of the questions I think Nick asked me in the last, uh, the last show before I left Manchester was, uh, so are you going to be, be giving us the news with an Australian accent in a few months? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for talking to us. No problem. So, as part of this uh, December edition, I have the honour of being in conversation with the Jodfather himself, uh, Dr Stuart Lowe. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Dave. That's, it's really bizarre. <laughs> it's a bit strange being on the other side, isn't it? It is. I vowed I'd never be interviewed for the Jodcast. I might live to regret this. <laughs> well, um, let's just uh, go back a few years. You, you've been at, uh, or you 
were at Jodrell for quite a while. And your work was uh, was with Planck. Well, eventually with Planck, but uh, can you take us through what led to that? After finishing my PhD, I then was trying to find something to do. I wanted to stay in astronomy, and there was a job going at Jodrell, a job working on Planck and doing instrumentation, which was similar to the things I'd been doing during my PhD. Within about a month of starting, I was then given the opportunity to go and spend uh, about three months in Italy over the summer of 2006. So this was a little bit after having just started the Jodcast. I remember it well. Yes. (laughs) I think I even phoned in from Italy a few times. Yes, you did. Yes. Uh, I remember those first few transcontinental ones. I think we had Nick in New Zealand. And And Tim in South America at one point. That's the one, yes. Yes. Um, So yeah, I I then worked on the low-frequency instrument of Planck and helping to calibrate the instrument and had a really good time in Italy for during that summer when people from all around Europe and, in fact, some people from America as well all descended on northern Italy to help test the instrument, and that was a really good time, and we got lots done. Um, it's amazing how much work goes into to making spacecraft able to be launched and to work in space because you can't go there and fix them. So you have to make sure that everything's covered, um, every eventuality, and you've tested your instrument as well as you can and made sure it works as well as it possibly can. So, And, of course, those those kinds of um, uh, the workshops have to be absolutely dust-free, don't they? Because uh, any little bits of... Uh, yeah, anything... very clean, clean rooms. Mm, mm-hmm. So after the summer of 2006, I continued working on the instrument. Um, we then integrated that instrument with the rest of the spacecraft so there was the high frequency instrument and then that was integrated with the whole spacecraft so you've got all the the bits that control the spacecraft you've got the solar panels to provide provide power and things like that and the mirrors themselves and then that was all tested so in the summer of 2008 we spent a few months in belgium it seemed like every waking hour and our waking hours were fairly random um (laughs) Because you, you would a test would be scheduled for nine in the morning and it wouldn't happen at nine in the morning and you'd be waiting for something else to finish or to work and it would probably be like seven in the evening before that test started. <laughs> and then you would have a shift of, say, eight hours or something. So the days oh. were either long or very, very short. Mm. There were some times when you'd arrive at nine in the morning um, having been only awake for an hour or two and then be told, oh, go back to bed because your shift starts this evening. Now, so... That was, it was actually, even though it was, it was rather demanding on your body in keeping up with this, this very confusing, um, schedule system. It was actually a lot of fun. Everyone was there in this, this place in the middle of a forest, basically, on the outskirts of Liege. We were having meals there and we, the sort of, everyone got to know each other quite well. So we had quite a lot of fun. Yeah, sounds it. And then after that, we had all the lead up to launch, um, last year, um, which was quite nerve wracking for everyone. After all these years of work, some people have been working on it since the early 90s. Um, I've only been working on it since 2006, but some people were there nearly 20 years. You were hoping it would all launch successfully and not just be still attached to the bottom of Herschel and not be able to do anything. (laughs) So that was quite nerve-wracking, and I did lose a lot of hair last year. (laughs) In just the combination of of trying to keep all the Jodcast going and still do all the demanding work around Planck. So we had a few months in the summer last year after launch while Planck was going to this point in space, L2, which is mm-hmm. a million miles on the other side of the Earth to the sun. During that time, we were cooling down the spacecraft and all the instruments. The coldest bit of Planck goes down to 0.1 Kelvin, which is extremely cold. Yes. If people don't know what that is, that's mi- about minus 273 degrees Celsius. 
So mm. it's very, very cold, and you need that to make the instrument work really well. So everyone was testing the instrument as it was cooling down, making sure that all the, the currents and voltages were all correct on all the instruments and that it was performing as well as it could. And then mm-hmm. the sky, first sky survey started in August last year, and they've now done two full sky surveys. Yes. Now, uh, in between all of this, in between all of your, your jod casting and, and, and plank, you've also been working on a few projects of your own, um, such as chromoscope. Yeah, so I, I like to play around in what's called my spare time. One of the things I've, I've had a long interest in is seeing the sky at different wavelengths, having done radio, lots of radio astronomy and working on Planck, which is at microwave and radio wavelengths. You spend a lot of time trying to imagine what the sky is actually looking like if you had radio telescopes for eyes and comparing that to the different other wavelengths of light. So optical light or infrared or ultraviolet or x-ray. And so one thing I wanted to do was have a nice way to change between different wavelengths because there are sky surveys at pretty much every wavelength, every major band. There are different depths and different amounts of resolution, the detail you can see in them. We've now got gamma ray surveys with Fermi that was been doing that in the last year or so. Planck has provided a new map of the sky, which WMAP had, had done, but Planck has gone to higher resolution at microwave wavelengths. We've had optical images of the sky for years, so I wanted to have a nice way to go between all of them. And so I basically remade Google Maps and made it so you could change the wavelengths just by dragging a little slider at the side and just fade between things. And actually, it's been a lot of fun just to see how the sky varies. It's, it's, yeah, it is. It's a very, very good little piece of software. And it's available in uh, multiple languages as well. It is. I've been really lucky. Astronomy gets people involved from all over the world and through combinations of professional astronomers, PhD students, amateur astronomers, people have volunteered to translate that into quite a few languages now. I think we've got Gaelic, Welsh, um, Swedish, French, German, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian. Um, Is I'm it probably in pirate yet? We haven't got a pirate translation, no. Oh, right, okay. So if anyone out there is fluent in any language that we don't yet have, then please do get in touch. It's great to have it in different languages. Yeah, very much so. So, um, going on from there, just to just to wrap up the interview, can you tell us what you're doing now? Well, I had a, a little bit of a change, and I've headed slightly away from radio astronomy and gone to to work for an optical observatory, the Las Cumbres Observatory Global Telescope, which is a network of telescopes spread around the world. People in the UK will perhaps be more familiar with the name Fox Telescope, and the Fox Telescopes are part of the Las Cumbres Observatory. And Folks is the the name of the the project in the UK that that goes to UK schools and gets them involved in using telescopes. So I've gone into to the optical domain, which is quite scary for a radio astronomer in some ways. I'm sort of involved now in the, a bit of education and website related things, and I've I've only been in the job for two months, so I'm still finding my way around. But I've been basically making the observations that come off the telescope um, a bit easier to search through and to find find your data. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to make all that nice and then to link into various techie things such as linked data and, and things like that. Because this astronomical data is uh, is notoriously complex, isn't it? It is, and there's, there's a lot of astronomical data, and there, there are a whole load of people around the world involved in something called the Virtual Observatory, which is trying to make it easy to share astronomical data, and the databases of which are only going to get bigger and bigger in the coming years. When things like the, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, the LSST, come online, we'll be getting 
basically real-time almost video of the night sky. That's how it'll oh, be compared wow. to now. They'll be constantly imaging the sky and putting huge, huge amounts of data onto the internet. There's going to be a slight problem of having people to analyse that data. Do you think then the future for astronomy is going to be along the sort of Galaxy Zoo model or the SETI at home model of, of actually letting the public go through and, and take a look for things? I think there's definitely going to be some of that. Some things you can do by computers and it's just much better to do it by computers. There are some really, really boring things that are very easy for computers to do that nobody is really bored enough to to do as a person. Um, so you you would get a computer to do all those things, but there are some things that still computers can't do, which Galaxy Zoo are showing us how you can get lots of people to contribute to the project of, of doing science. So there's definitely going to be things like that. Even in, in Las Cumbres Observatory, there are some ideas about future plans of doing citizen science projects. So I think citizen science is going to be an important part of astronomy in the next few years. In that case, thank you very much for um, for coming along onto the Jodcast. It's been a pleasure to have you. And we wish you all the very best in your new job and in the wonderful, weird and wacky world of optical astronomy. Thanks for that, Mark and Dave. Thanks, Neil. Now we move on to the area of the show where we round up everything that we couldn't put anywhere else. It's the odds and ends section. And Jen... Okay, well, at the beginning of the show, we mentioned cake and party bags, and that's because we're thinking of doing Jod Pub 2, because it's the 100th episode this time, it's five years in January. And it was such a success. And it was such a success. But unfortunately, like last time, we have done absolutely no planning. We do not have a date. We do not have a venue. It will be in Manchester, and it will be in January. Now, hopefully, this time, people are going to be catching up on the Jodcast over Christmas, Mm -hmm. and therefore will listen to the show and go, ooh, a Jod pub, instead of listening to the show a month later, (laughs) after the event, and then emailing us to complain. Because I've got all that time to actually sit back, chill out, and just listen to the Jodcast. Yeah, listen to the Jodcast under the Christmas tree. Exactly. And indeed, catch up on all of the the previous five years as well. If you have only started listening recently, there's plenty more to listen to. But this event, this Jod Pub, is also, we're thinking of doing one in January because there's a BBC programme called BBC Stargazing Live, which is happening in January. I think it's the 3rd, 4th and 5th of January in the evenings for an hour, and this is a live event that's being broadcast from Jodrell Bank, which is really cool, Mm. with Professor Brian Cox. (laughs) It's also worth noting that you can do Stargazing Live every night, as long as there's no clouds. Yes, but the BBC are planning on having a whole host of events across the country to coincide with this. I think they're going to be running from the 3rd until the 16th of January. So we're hopefully going to have something in Manchester anyway, maybe with some telescopes in Piccadilly Gardens like we've done before or something like that. And we thought, why not combine that with a trip to the pub to meet your favourite jogcasters? Exactly. And hopefully throughout January you might be able to even interview some of the people who are taking part in the uh, Stargazing Live event. Yeah, so um, Dara Breen is also going to be at Jodrell Bank um, and I think Jonathan Ross is not going to be at Jodrell Bank but taking part so who knows what will happen maybe we'll get some celebrities on the February issue. So ESA have recently announced the latest intake of astronaut candidates have uh, received their diplomas at the European Astronaut Centre in Cologne, Germany and they'll now be called well they'll now officially be astronauts so they've completed their basic training which consists of learning Russian, doing medical and survival and robotics training, electrical engineering and space 
engineering sort of training, as well as general sort of familiarization with the International Space Station. So this group consists of six people, so two Italians, a Frenchman, a Dane, a German and a Briton, who uh, started or commenced their training last year in September. So this six actually made it out of uh, a group of 8,000 applicants to get through to this final stage, and uh, hopefully they'll first take part in a flight to the ISS in 2013. So they're going to have to be piggybacking on Russian spacecraft by yes, then, I guess. Yes, on the Soyuz capsule, I think that is, yeah. Yeah, because we talked in the November show about the space shuttle Discovery's final flight was meant to have taken part at the beginning of November. So at the time of recording the presenting for November, we said, by the time this one comes out, Discovery will be in space. And then it got delayed because of weather, I think. And then they found some cracks somewhere on Discovery. So actually, it's still not launched and the earliest it's going to be is the end of December. So apologies to anyone who's been going around telling their friends that Discovery has launched. It hasn't. An interesting thing also is the fact that the training programme which ESA actually put their astronauts through is the first time that it's actually been fully independent of uh, America and Russia. So it's been fully tailored towards uh, European astronauts. So that's quite interesting itself. So one day we can go and train to be European astronauts? Yes, we could. Yay, except I'm probably too short. (laughs) And I'm probably too tall. And I'll be too... um... Old. You have to be 27 to actually um, apply, I think. Ha! In your face, Jen. So the last bit of odds and ends that I've got is something that was in the Metro this morning that I read on my way into work. Neil is laughing at me because he doesn't think I should read the Metro, but I enjoy reading it on my bus journey into the office in the morning. So this was something that apparently a Spanish woman has legally registered herself as the owner of the sun. So how do you do that, Jen? Um, Good question. She's quoted as saying, I'm not stupid, I know the law, which apparently says there's... Everyone knows there's the agreements that no country can lay claim to the moon or to the planets or to stars, but it doesn't say anything about individuals. So she's gone and been issued with a title deed from some lawyers in Spain, which say she is the owner of the sun, a star of spectral type G2, located in the centre of the solar system at an average distance from Earth of about 149 million kilometres. So what does she actually gain from laying claim to the sun? I mean, it's a star, right? What yes, can she, do she with the, is the now planning on charging everyone for using it. So I wonder how that's going to go about. <laughs> so I've got a, little, a, a, a couple of, sort of things about that. I'm just thinking, firstly, how is she going to collect the money? PayPal? <laughs> I am not. She's going to charge governments, whole, and energy co- like providers, you know? I have absolutely no idea how she's going to do this, but... And, and also, when when the sun uh, goes into its red giant phase or stops being stops being a G two type star, does she'll she be then dead. have to change the deed? Yeah, she'll she'll be dead. I know she'll have been dead for a few million years, but still, who who knows? But she plans to charge all users, which made me think: Does she charge based on what country you live in? Because obviously, depending on where you are on the Earth, you're going to get different amounts of sunlight. It could be like sort of a total surface power or total surface yeah, energy that you have, like in terms of watts. Surely here in Manchester we're not going to be charged very much. Mm. I like how we're thinking about this seriously. <laughs> and and does this also mean that in uh, places like the Arctic, where there's uh, where the sun disappears for a while, they can actually campaign to have it put back there so they can have 12-hour days <laughs> all year round? Because if she owns it, then she can 
then it's up to her. You'd assume she to. could do something with it, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, There's the other no thing use... I thought, if you get skin cancer from too much sunbathing, can you then sue her? Mm. Who knows? Also, I think we'd, we'd have to uh, refer her to the competition commission because uh, <laughs> she can't be the sole provider of, of solar energy. It's yeah. a good point, actually. You have a monopoly on that. I mean, like, yeah, yeah exactly. Actually... She could charge whatever she wanted. What's she wanting to do with the money, though? Right, so she says she's going to give half the proceedings to the Spanish government, uh, 20% to the nation's pension fund, 10% to research, 10% to fighting world hunger, and keep the last 10%. Wow. So she's basically wanting to combat, you know, the the growing deficit in Spain. Oh, God, no, I, I just don't know where this came from. But <laughs> another guy at coffee said, if she can go and put a flag on it, we should allow her to have it. <laughs> Well, from the person that claims to own the sun to the person that actually owns the night sky, because he knows everything that there is to know about it. Here's Ian Morrison. Well, the night sky in December 2010. Actually, it's quite a good month. Not least because, of course, you haven't got to stay up too late to see the evening sky or get up too early to see the morning sky. And we've got nice things to look at both in the evening and in the morning. Let's just start with the stars that we can see. In the early evening, we have a part of the sky I've talked about quite a bit in the last few months. You've got the square of Pegasus roughly south, and up to the left of that, you've got Andromeda leading up to Perseus, and then to the right of that, fairly high overhead, we have Cassiopeia. If you follow from Cassiopeia down towards Perseus, with a pair of binoculars, or even just your eyes if it's a really clear, dark night with no moon, you are running sort of along the way of the Milky Way, and halfway between the two, you should see a little fuzzy area, and it's called the Perseus Double Cluster. And it's a lovely thing, even in binoculars, but with a small telescope, it's one of the loveliest things to see in the sky. You've got these two groups of stars close together, and they just sort of sparkle away, and well worth having a look at. Cassiopeia is like a W. If you take the lower right three stars of the W, that, of course, makes a little arrow. And if you follow down the direction of that arrow, either with your eyes or with a pair of binoculars, then you may come across a rather little misty glow in the sky. And that, in fact, is the core, the heart of the Andromeda galaxy. It's the nearest giant galaxy to us. It's also called M31. It's the 31st object in Messier's catalogue, and it's about 2.5 million light-years away. And once you've seen it with binoculars, if it's really dark and the sky is transparent, you could probably pick it out just with your eyes alone. And it's rather nice to think that the photons that are falling on your retina left there about 2.5 million years ago. As I've said before, I'm sure, you're really looking back into time. As the evening progresses, then Taurus the bull is rising up in the east and up to the right of Aldebaran, the eye of the bull, it's a lovely red star, that's actually in the direction of the Hyades cluster. It's not actually part of the Hyades cluster. It's about halfway between us and it. That Hyades cluster is a form of a V, and that makes, if you can imagine it, the head of the bull with Aldebaran, this reddish star, it's a red giant star, the eye. Up to the right of the Hyades is a lovely cluster of stars called the Pleiades Cluster, well worth looking at either with binoculars or with a small telescope. There's a particularly pretty region in the centre of the Pleiades Cluster, adjacent to one of the brightest stars in the heart, 
is a little triplet of stars, just three stars close together, looking very, very pretty. And with binoculars down to the lower right of that, there's a double star system, one of which is, in fact, surprisingly red. So it's a very lovely thing to look at with binoculars and even better with a small telescope. There's also a lovely little arc of stars that drop down to the lower left from the, the main region. There is some nebulosity there. It's actually because the light from the rather blue hot stars that make up the brighter stars in the Pleiades cluster are actually being reflected off a dust cloud through which the cluster is moving. It shows up very well in photographs, but it's exceedingly hard to see. But on a very transparent night, if the sky is really clear, no moon, there's just a chance you might pick it up. Below... Taurus, down to the lower left, of course, is now rising that wonderful winter constellation, Orion the Hunter. He has three stars in a line making up his belt. His right shoulder, actually seen to the left as we look at it, is in fact the very bright red star Betelgeuse. It's a red supergiant. Above that, an arc of stars make sort of his hand and a club. To the right, you see an arc of stars that are his shield and his left knee, which is to the lower right as we look at it, we have in fact the very bright blue star called Rigel. If you look below the central star of the belt with binoculars and drop down a bit, you'll see a misty glow, and that's the great nebula in Orion. It's basically a birthplace of stars, and in photographs it looks a lovely red colour, or there's red coloration there, which is in fact the light from its hydrogen that's being excited by ultraviolet light from a group of very, very hot blue stars, which we call the trapezium, that are right in the heart of the Orion Nebula. Again, a lovely region to look at with either binoculars or a telescope. Rising a little bit later, but down to the lower left of Orion, is the very bright star Sirius in Canis Major. If you take a pair of binoculars, look at Sirius, and then gradually drop down towards the horizon you should pick up a rather nice little cluster called M41. And in binoculars it looks very pretty because they're mostly blue stars, but right at the heart is a very prominent red star. Very sweet as well. So there's a lot to see in the sky this month. Enjoy having a look. So having looked at the skyscape of the stars this month, let's have a look at some of the planets. In the evening, you can hardly miss Jupiter. It's at a magnitude of minus 2.5, so essentially the brightest object in the sky in the evening, apart, of course, from the moon. It's becoming a little smaller and fainter as the month progresses because we're moving away from it. The magnitude drops to minus 2.4. That's still pretty bright by the end of the month. The angular size is dropping from just over 40 arc seconds to 39. So it's still a very lovely object to look at with a telescope. Even binoculars can actually show you the four little Galilean moons, Io, Europa, Callisto and Ganymede, as they weave their way around it. Now, interestingly, since Jupiter reappeared in the sky some months ago, it's been missing its south equatorial belt. Jupiter's covered by some bands. They alternate between white and dark. And the one in the south, which would look in the top end with the telescope probably, that's been missing. And that's the region where we find the great red spot, which actually is rather prominent. And because the band isn't there, it's actually standing out rather more. But I have to tell you, it looks as though that south equatorial band is now gradually returning. So it won't be long before we see Jupiter as we normally see it. 
On the 29th of December, Jupiter will have appeared to have gained another moon. Now, in fact, it's pretty obvious it's not a moon because the four moons are in a nice sort of line. But the star, it's called 20 Piscium, which is a 5.5 magnitude star, will actually appear a little bit to the north of it. So it will look as though there are five bright objects in the region of Jupiter. So that's the 29th of December. Have a quick look if you can. Well, Saturn was missing for a while, but it's now a pre-dawn object. And in fact, it's getting more and more prominent as the months go by. It's rising as early as 1 a.m. by the end of the month. The magnitude is plus 0.9, a little bit more than it was last year, because gradually the rings are opening out. Last year, the rings were almost edge on. And that meant, of course, they weren't reflecting light back towards us. They started about nine degrees away from the line of sight at the start of December. And by the end of the month, they're about 10 degrees. So they're opening out. It does also mean that you have a chance with a telescope of spotting Cassini's division, which is in fact between the A and the B rings of Saturn. So it's a fairly prominent thing, but of course when the rings are edge on, you haven't a chance of seeing it. So that should now be becoming possible to see. So do have a look for Saturn. It'll come back in one of the highlights a bit later on. Well, moving on, we have three other bright planets. The first one's Mercury. Now, it is in principle visible during the first week or so of December. It's magnitude minus 0.3, which is relatively bright. The trouble is, it's very low and perhaps only about six degrees above the horizon as the sun is setting. Don't look for it, really, until the sun has set, because you have to be very careful, of course, looking anywhere towards the sun. But with binoculars, given a very low horizon, essentially down in the west-southwest, roughly where the sun has set, you might have a chance of picking it up. But probably we actually need to wait for a few months until it comes out on the other side of the sun. It's actually coming towards us at the moment, and it passes what's called inferior conjunction when it's between us and the sun on the 20th of December. So then there'll be a couple of weeks or so and then we'll be able to see it again, perhaps towards the end of January, and that will be in the morning. So that might be slightly better. So there's a chance, but it's not something to worry about too much. Likewise, Mars is behind the sun all of this month, so it's just not visible. Venus, on the other hand, that actually went through inferior conjunction at the end of October. So it's now a pre-dawn object, and it really is shining wonderfully brightly. This month, or at least the first two weeks, it's at its absolute peak brightness, about magnitude minus 4.9. And I've seen it several times in the morning. I've got a good eastern horizon. You just cannot miss it. Even by the time the twilight's there, it's still standing out. So do have a look at that. The great thing is that at this time of year, the ecliptic in the morning is at a steep angle to the horizon. So it's actually quite a long way above the horizon, which is very good. The angular size is actually dropping. At the beginning of the month, because it's quite near to us, it's 42 arc seconds across, but only 25% illuminated. During the month, that drops from 42 arc seconds to 27 arc seconds, so the angular size is getting smaller. But at the same time, the area of Venus that's illuminated by the Sun is increasing to 45%. The net result is that the sort of effective reflecting area, as we see from the Earth, is stays 
pretty much constant almost the whole time we see Venus in the sky. And it's between about minus 4 and minus 4.5 most of the time we see it. But just for a little bit, soon after the time it appears in the morning sky or just before it disappears in the evening sky, it can actually reach minus 4.9. So do have a look. As I say, if you look out to the east and it's clear just before dawn, you cannot possibly miss it. Well, finally, three highlights of the month. And as I said, it's actually quite a good month. First of all, for the first time in about three years, we have a total eclipse of the moon. But on the night sky page, where I actually put a chart showing you exactly when and how to see it, I put the words just. The problem is that the actual mid-eclipse appears at 0816. And, of course, by that time, the sun has risen. So what we can see from the UK are the early stages of the eclipse, first from about 5.29, when the moon starts moving into the penumbra, which is the less dark region. It's where some of the sun is not visible, as seen from where the moon is. By about 7.41, and that's still when it's dark, it's just got into the umbral shadow, so then it should look really quite dark. But as it moves across the umbral shadow, where it should look at its best, then, of course, the sun is beginning to rise and its glare will reduce our view. Now, when we see a really good total lunar eclipse, if the atmosphere is clear, it looks a wonderful bronze in colour, really does. If the atmosphere is not clear, and remember we've had the volcano in Iceland, that could have put enough dust up into the atmosphere to reduce the amount of light that's scattered around through the Earth's atmosphere and which illuminates the moon during a time of total eclipse. If you could imagine being on the surface of the moon looking back to the Earth, during that umbral phase, when the sun is totally invisible to you, the Earth would be dark, the back of it of course, but you'd see a red rim. It's the light that's coming round through the Earth's atmosphere. And that's what illuminates the moon and what we will see looking back at the moon from the Earth. If there's a lot of dust in the atmosphere, the amount of light is less, which means that the moon can go a very dull grey colour and almost be barely visible. So it depends how much dust has been put up by the unpronounceable volcano in Iceland. I suspect it's not actually that bad, so maybe we shall have a reasonable look. But sadly, you won't see it at mid-eclipse or afterwards. But if you get up just before dawn or an hour or so before dawn, you can watch the moon going into the umbral shadow. By the way, that's on December the 21st, the winter solstice, which is rather nice. Now, on December the 14th, we have a good year to observe the Geminid meteor shower. It's one of the regular meteor showers that we see, and they're up to 60 meteors an hour visible during the peak. And that peak is on the morning of December the 14th. Sometimes we have a moon that's in the way, and if the moon is bright, then you don't really see so many meteors. You just see the very brightest of them. But it's about the time of first quarter, and that means the moon will actually have set by about midnight. And the best time to observe meteor showers is always in the early hours of the morning. In fact, the Earth is then moving towards them, or we are on the Earth's surface. So 1 to 2 o'clock, 1 to 3 o'clock perhaps, is about the best time. By that time, if it's clear, there'll be no moonlight, so we should see very well. Try and get away 
from the lights of a town or city. Get somewhere on the eastern side of any light pollution that you know of, so you can try and look up towards the east. Germany will be rising quite high in the sky. Just look, generally speaking, with your eyes in that sort of direction, up to the east. Probably not directly at Germany, but up, let's say, above Orion or over to the left of Germany. About 45 degrees away from what's called the radiant, that's where the actual meteors appear to come from, is about the best direction to look. And quite often you get groups of people going to have a look and they look at different parts of the sky and together they can actually get quite a high rate. Any one person may not obviously pick them all out. So it's good to have two or three people. But wrap up warm because if it's clear, it's going to be pretty cold. And finally, just one skyscape. And that's at the very beginning of December, December the 2nd. We have in the east, remember I've said that we have Venus rising before the sun. Saturn is now rising quite a while before the sun. But also on December the 2nd, there'll be a very thin crescent waning moon. So you'll have Venus, the brightest object, apart from the moon, over to the left. Down to its lower right will be the thin crescent moon. Above the moon will be the star Spica, Alpha Virginis, the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo. And then, not too far above that, you'll have the planet Saturn. So that should make a very lovely grouping, two planets and the moon. So it's a nice month. There's plenty of time to observe the heavens. Please go out and enjoy it. I quite often mention the night sky page on the Jodrell Bank website. I think putting night sky into Google often brings it up. The picture that I've used this month as my image of the month was taken by a friend of mine called Peter Shah, not far away from Shropshire. He has a lovely telescope there built by a friend of mine, Barry Pemberton, and his son at Orion Optics in Crewe. It's an F3.8 8-inch astrograph. Now, that's a short focal-length Newtonian, so you get quite a big field of view, and you also get a fair amount of light collected, so it doesn't take too long to take images. That's why it's called an astrograph, really. Now, the trouble with a short focal-length Newtonian is it gives you a very curved field of view, and you get coma. Stars near the edge of the field look like little comets. That's a problem with Newtonians, particularly prominent when it's a short focal-length Newtonian. Well, this telescope includes corrective optics to give you a very flat field. Peter Shah has been using probably the prototype of this new series of telescopes built by Orion Optics, and he's been making some wonderful images. And the one I've chosen to show, he only produced a few weeks ago, is of the Andromeda Galaxy M31 I've mentioned earlier. And it is probably the most beautiful image of Andromeda I've ever seen. So I would encourage you to go to the Night Sky website, have a look, and there's a link there to his own website where you can see many more of his very lovely images. So even if you're in a not particularly dark part of the United Kingdom, it just shows you what you can do. Thank you, Ian. And now to hear what you can see in the Southern Hemisphere, here's John Field. Welcome to the Carter Observatory's December Jodcast. The long days of summer have arrived here in the Southern Hemisphere. Although not the longest nights for observing, they are the most comfortable, except for those darn mozzies. 
In Aotearoa, we are visited by large numbers of people from the Northern Hemisphere who invariably comment that the night sky is upside down. This effect is due to our perspective on the heavens from our viewpoint on planet Earth. In the days of sail and sea travel, the observer's view of the night sky would slowly change as you travelled southwards. Today, with modern transport, we can quite literally fly from one hemisphere to another in a matter of hours. This can lead to a sudden reversal of the orientation of the night sky. For us, the December solstice, Christmas, is when the sun is highest in our southern sky. Although this may be obvious to you and I, early settlers and builders in New Zealand do not always take this into account. Near Wanganui on the Taranaki coast is a house built from plans made in England. The plans were never reorientated for the southern hemisphere, so the servants' quarters faced north, getting all-day sun. The landowners face south and rarely see the sun. In the night sky, Orion and Taurus straddle the celestial equator and are therefore visible in both hemispheres. The brightest star in Orion is called Rigel, from the Arabic word for foot. For southern observers, Orion's foot is above his belt, and Betelgeuse, his shoulder, is below and towards the northern horizon. Due to its position south of the celestial equator, Rigel is always visible from the south pole, while Betelgeuse further north never rises. At an estimated distance of 800 light years, Rigel signs with a luminosity of approximately 85,000 times that of our star, the Sun, making it the seventh brightest star in our night sky. Rigel has a companion called Rigel B, first measured in 1831. This star shines at magnitude 6.7, but is overpowered by the glare of Rigel. An 8-inch or greater telescope should easily reveal it. This star turned out to be a spectroscopic binary. Spectroscopic binaries are so far away or too close together that the two stars cannot be visually separated and it is only by studying the changes in the star's spectrum as they orbit around each other that they can be discovered. To Māori, Rigel is called Puanga and its dawn rising in the lower North Island heralded the changing of the Māori calendar year. Betelgeuse marks the shoulder of Orion and is the tenth brightest star and a prominent red star in our nighttime sky. It must be the most well-known star name, with having a movie named after it, same pronunciation but different spelling, and a planet in the vicinity of the star was the birthplace of Ford Prefect in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It is a red giant that has used up all of the available hydrogen at its core and is now fusing helium. This produces a much higher internal temperature, and that leads to the surface of the star expanding and cooling. Betelgeuse's surface is cooler than the surface of our star, the Sun, around about 3,500 degrees Kelvin, and this gives the star its distinct red colour. Once its nuclear fuel is used up, this star should explode as a supernova, perhaps within the next million years, or it may have already happened. Keep an eye on it. You never know, it may go nova tonight. Supernovae happen on average once every 100 years or so in our galaxy. The only problem is they may be on the other side of the galaxy or hidden by the plane of the Milky Way, and are therefore rarely seen. The last supernova in our galaxy that was close enough to observe was in 1604, and is known as Kepler's Nova, or SN1604. At its brightest, it was brighter than any star or planet in our night sky, and was visible to the unaided eye for 18 months. The star that it had exploded was 20,000 light years away, and is the site of an expanding bubble of gas that was ejected in the explosion. In our evening sky, near to the fainter of the two horns of Taurus, is a supernova remnant called the Crab Nebula, which is faintly visible through small telescopes. This remnant is related to the naked eye supernova of 1054. At its centre is a neutron star, the compressed core of the original star spinning at 30 times a second. 
Taurus is one of the twelve zodiac constellations, the group of constellations that the ecliptic passes through. It represents the god Zeus in Greek mythology. Through late November to mid-December, the sun is opposite Taurus and can be found in the 13th and lesser well-known constellation of Ophiuchus. The sun spends more time travelling through this constellation than through Scorpius. It is along the ecliptic that we find the sun, moon and planets. In December, Mercury and Mars are low down in the west after sunset, and Jupiter still sits high in the north. Venus and Saturn are in the morning sky, low down in the twilight, but as the month progresses they will climb higher. The Milky Way and Southern Cross can be found along the southern horizon in the early evening and will climb higher in the southeast as the night progresses. On December 21st there will be a total eclipse of the moon visible throughout New Zealand. The moon would have already moved into the Earth's shadow as it rises in our night sky. At total eclipse the moon should have a distinct reddish hue. This is a lovely way to send off 2010. We wish you all a happy Christmas and a safe New Year from the team here at Carter Observatory. And now we move to the part of the show where we look through our feedback bag and see what's been sent in. So what's happened on the email front? We've got an email from Paul Miyagawa, who is a researcher at CERN, who was actually at our Jogcast live event last year and featured in our Panto. So if you haven't listened to last year's Panto, go and check that out. Um, But he says he's been catching up on the episodes and there are two things which he particularly enjoyed. One was Dave's interview with Fraser Duncan... At Sudbury. Uh, sorry, Dave. sorry, where did I go? Where did I go, Jen? You went to the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, and I'm going to hit you next time I see you. <laughs> but he said that that reminded him of, of his time at Snow because he was a master's student there. And the other one that he enjoyed was Tim's glorious rant about the Big Bang occurring at a single point. And he wants to know if Tim has any other bugbears which would provoke more fabulously entertaining diatribes. So we'll have to ask him next time we get round to having an Ask an Astronomer. And we also got an email from Doug Varney, who says he's a PhD student in the US, and he's been listening to the Jodcast, or the Jod, as he refers to us, uh, for what seems like years. And he says we do an excellent job, always witty and funny, and uh, he just wants more. He ends the email with Jod, 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 Jod. We should stop that now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the forum, thank you to Greasy Pie for confirming that Captain Kirk is mentioned in the German version of 99 Red Balloons. I should listen to that again. Yeah, that was our, our witty comment was, everyone's a Captain Kirk last time, <laughs> which is a lyric from 99 Red Balloons, but we weren't actually sure if the internet was lying to us, so thank you for that. And if you want to make us another cake for the next Jod Pub, that would be really appreciated. Yes, Birthday yes. cake. Also on the forum, we've started a Ask a Jodcaster thread, so mm. we thought that it would be nice because we've got two anniversary shows. It would be quite nice to answer some of your questions. So if you have any questions that you want to ask us, everything's it's, it's ranged from a marriage proposal to when was the last time you looked through a telescope to what's Dave's favourite sonic stru- screwdriver. So anything... It, it, I'd say definitely it's it's the traditional type. Okay. The traditional type, the green one or is it the blue one? I don't know. Uh, the blue one. Well, that's, I, I suppose That's good to know, Dave. Is, is actually this, the original um, John Pertwee one. So if you have questions, just give us a shout and uh, we'll try our best. Thank you, Neil, for rescuing us. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and on Twitter, we've just got to say sorry to Andy Dykes, Yoda the Oak and other people for depriving them of the November Extra show. And yes, we will be depriving you of the December Extra as well. Yes, too busy having Christmas celebrations. Yes, things. <laughs> I'd also like to thank uh, Simon Hunt on Facebook for keeping our group alive. 
Cheers yeah, please, time. please go on the Facebook group. It's probably the thing I check the most and no one's ever there and then it makes me cry a little inside. Mm. So also, if you want to get in touch with us at all, there, we do have a postal address. It's on the website. Uh, send us some Christmas cards. Yay. Or if you're going away for the cold weather, uh, do send us a postcard. Nick is jealous. Because I'm not there, but I assume that the postcard wall is still as bare as it was last time I was there. It's looking pretty good, but we've not had many additions over the last 12 months. That makes Jen cry a little inside as well. I should probably stop talking about crying because last time I said this, people started sending in loads of stuff and apologising for making me cry. I'm not actually crying. She's crying. There's a tear in her, her eye right now. She's very composed. Jen, it's okay. <laughs> we've got nice listeners. I, I promise you we've got we nice do. listeners. But if you do want to get in contact with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at jodcast.net slash forum. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And finally on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And that brings the 100th episode of the Jodcast to an end, I'm afraid. So thanks must go to Megan and Stuart for being on the other side of the mic for once. Massive thanks to Mike Brown, Pluto Killer, for participating in the panto and all of the usual Jodcast voices uh, for providing theirs. Including a soon-to-be Jodcast voice, Catherine McGuire, who was how may I? And finally, Fiona Thrail, thank you ever so much for editing the whole of the intro-outro together. And also for the work that she's done for the intros-outros for the last couple of years. Yeah, Fiona, thank you so much. Without you, you, they probably wouldn't still be going. So until next year, have a fantastic Christmas. Holidays, whatever. Just enjoy the rest of the year. And John. on. Bye. See ya. And so that's why he never got his PhD. And he's hunting you down for that? Well, if he comes here, I'm going to take him down. I don't think he'll find me here. So it's okay. That's where you're wrong, Neil White. You'll give me your pulsar observations or face the consequences. Oh no, it's the King of Manchester. Help me, everyone. Sorry, we can't help. We've got to go. Go? What do you mean? We're constantly orbiting the sun. We don't stay in one place long enough to be of any use. Yep. See you in 557 years. Goodbye. That's been swell. Shush, we're enough copyright trouble as it is. Great. Now, give me your research. But, but you don't really want to be a PhD student. The hours are long, the pay is rubbish, and you slave away all day in front of a computer. In fact, you can have the research. I don't want to do it now anyway, come to think about it. What? What, really? Yeah, it's rubbish life. So if you really, really want that PhD, you can have it. Uh, well, I... I'm not really sure I want it Please take it. No, I've decided. I'll see you back at the palace. After all, I'm already a king. I don't need to be a doctor, too. Bye for now. And to think they're worried about the copyright.